0: Annihilation. 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 Annihilation! One minute at a time. Out <laughs> of the night that covers me, like as pit from pole to pole, think thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but I'm bowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. William Ernest Henley, Invictus Cain has returned, but we do not even know for sure who he is. We have seen photos, seen the marital bed, but we also met Daniel before we met Cain. In the intimate way he touched Lena's arm suggested a close relationship, we are still meeting these characters. Still, Kane's affect is unusual, and Lena has positioned herself a good distance from him. He sits on one side of the dining room table. She does not sit opposite him, yet. She stands by the kitchen counter. In slightly different ways, both Lena and Kane display some emotional numbing that might feel like PTSD. Matthew Tall, Ph.D., explains, VeryWellMind.com, 13th, March 2019, quote, Emotional numbing symptoms generally refer to those symptoms that reflect difficulties in experiencing positive emotions. The specific symptoms that make up the emotional numbing symptoms are a loss of interest in important ones' positive activities, feeling distant from others, experiencing difficulties having positive feelings such as happiness or love, PTSD and emotional avoidance go hand in hand, Many people with PTSD try to escape their emotions. They may try to avoid thoughts, feelings, or conversations about the traumatic event and places or people that bring the event to mind. Avoidance also refers to difficulty remembering important parts of the traumatic event and feeling as a life has been cut short. End quote. Return to Lena a few minutes ago, sitting as I described it awkwardly at the side of her classroom, saying what might have been inspirational words about her students being the doctors of tomorrow if she'd taken the right tone, but her presentation was monotonic, her affect indifferent. At home, alone, she would break down and cry, but in public, she shut down. Angelica J. Bastion, writing for Vulture, 2nd March 2018, calls Annihilation, quote, a masterwork I felt in my nerve endings, a brutal, gorgeous meditation on the rigors of depression and the human impulse toward self-destruction. These themes ripple through every facet of Annihilation. The tremendous performances, the dreamlike story, and the fracturing, baroque swampland the characters trudge through, searching for oblivion and serenity in equal measure. End quote. And further on, she explains, quote, Each woman comes to represent a different facet of the struggle with depression and self-destruction. In Cass, I see the knowledge that you can never return to the person you once were in the wake of trauma. In Anya, it's how you lose touch with and control of your own body. In Ventress is the angry, repulsive desire to give yourself fully to engendering your own destruction. And in Josie, it's the weight of suicidal ideation. I have come in recent years to describe suicidal ideation as a bitter pulp. It feels like a thread being pulled at the back of my skull. A gnawing will not cease until it is embraced. I have never seen a forthright consideration of suicide that captures the essence of this feeling and the way it haunts me, even when I'm well, until I watched Tessa Thompson as Josie. After most of the team has been brutally killed, Josie and Lena get a moment of reprieve, looking out at the beautiful wildlife surrounding the home that became both their refuge and hell. Lena is determined to continue. Josie is curiously still, her eyes trained elsewhere. She remarks that she doesn't look at Area X the way Lena and Ventress have, trying to understand it and trying to destroy it, respectively. She's embracing it. It's then that you notice her bare forearms leaves and foliage prickling through the scars. She walks away from Lena, who calls her name and follows her, but she's gone, turned into one of those beguiling human-shaped trees, something beautiful, complex, and strange even in death. Josie's acceptance of death further invites questions about how we'd heal from traumas and the possibility of becoming whole, which Lena's arc perhaps gives answers to. Lena, in many ways, is a culmination of what the other characters represent, a longing for death, an angry, self-destructive quality. The feeling that her body is no longer her own, and a curious embrace of sorrow and understanding of how it has reworked her. The film reaches a crescendo as Lena arrives at the lighthouse where this entire ecological phenomenon began. As Josephine Livingstone notes in her moving piece for the New public, quote, The lighthouse is surrounded by crystal trees that resemble the synapses of the brain. The lighthouse's desire as with wolf and also the frontier that separates our own minds from others here we see an embodied meditation on subjectivity and trauma and lena finds a video camera with footage explaining the charred skeleton sitting before her which may actually be her husband meaning the man who returned home to her is not a man at all the most affecting moment comes later as lena becomes embroiled in her struggle with a shimmering faceless creature that mirrors her movements at one point Literally being crushed by it. As Emily Ushida expresses in her Vulture Review, quote, Garland goes silent for the film's stunning finale. Something at the intersection of the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey and Modern Dance. It left me breathless with an unforgiving depiction of the relentless weight of depression, the impulse to self-destruct, end quote. End quote. Kane is not Kane, but Lena does not know this. We do not know this. We certainly do not know what that means. But whether Kane is a doppelganger instead of Lena's presumed deceased husband, or he is a soldier who suffered a particularly powerful trauma, his demeanor here might be the same. Lena cheated on her husband presumably before he was gone, and definitely after, even though his death had never been confirmed. Her guilt upon seeing him back again coupled with her reliance, as we just saw a couple minutes ago, On happier memories over more troubled ones, means that in this moment she is guarded. She is on the offensive because how else can she reclaim anything of the self she thought she was before? Alex Garland explains in an interview with The Verge, 21st February 2018, regarding what he wanted, thematically, in adapting Annihilation. Quote, I think the main thematic preoccupation probably belongs primarily to the film, which is really about self-destruction. It's about the nature of self-destruction in a literal sense. Cells have life cycles, and stars have life cycles, planets in the universe and us, you, me, everyone. But also psychological forms of self-destruction. It was born out of a funny kind of preoccupation I started to have. Everybody is self-destructive, which is a strange thing to notice. I think a lot of self-destruction is very obvious. He gestures to cigarettes at the table. That's an obvious self-destruction, Right. And if a friend of yours is a heroin addict or an alcoholic, that's an obvious kind of self-destruction. But there are also... You've also got friends, or people you encounter, who are super comfortable in their own skin, very self-possessed, and feel like they have understood some sort of secret to existence that you're not party to. And then you start to see... No, that's not quite right. It's more complicated than that. And fissures and fault lines appear. And between the fissures and the fault lines, you see bits of behavior doesn't really make sense. Like, they're dismantling things in their lives for no good reason. And it's a key part in the film, which is that there's an active destruction of a marriage that the film does not explain. Because it is important that these things are not explainable in those terms, you know? Somebody dismantling their marriage or their job or their friendship or something might have some superficial reasons why they think they're doing it. But that's not why they're doing it. So the film is looking at that and presenting a thesis as to why that's the case but it's doing it by inference. I think, broadly speaking, the film is inferring stuff rather than stating it. End quote. Mina's guilt and depression, Kane's post-traumatic stress, these are subtext as text in a way, but also subjects too rarely spoken of that being occasionally obvious is not all that bad. From the novel, Annihilation. Quote, My husband was on the 11th expedition as a medic. He'd never wanted to be a doctor. He'd always wanted to be in first response or working in trauma. A triage nurse in the field, as he put it. He had been recruited for Area X by a friend who remembered him from when they had both worked for the Navy, before he switched over to ambulance service. At first he hadn't said yes, had been unsure, but over time they convinced him. It caused a lot of strife between us although we already had many difficulties. I know this information might not be hard for anyone to find out, but I have hoped that in reading this account you might find me a credible, objective witness, not someone who volunteered for Area X because of some other event unconnected to the purpose of the expeditions. And in a sense, this is still true. And my husband's status as a member of an expedition is in many ways irrelevant to why I signed up. But how could I not be affected by Area X if only through him? One night, about a year after he'd headed for the border, as I lay alone in bed, I heard someone in the kitchen. Armed with a baseball bat, I left the bedroom and turned on the lights in the house. I found my husband next to the refrigerator, still dressed in his expedition clothes, drinking milk until it flowed down his chin and neck. Eating leftovers furiously, I was speechless. I could only stare at him as if he were a mirage, and if I moved or said anything he would dissipate into nothing. Or less than nothing. We sat in the living room, him on the sofa and me in a chair opposite. I needed some distance from this sudden apparition. He did not remember how he had left Area X, did not remember the journey home at all. He had only the vaguest recollection of the expedition itself. There was an odd calm about him, punctured only by moments of remote panic when in asking him what had happened, he recognized that his amnesia was unnatural gone from him, too, seemed to be any memory of how our marriage had begun to disintegrate well before our arguments over his leaving for Area X. It contained within him now the very distance he had in so many subtle and not-so-subtle ways accused me of in the past. After a time, I couldn't take it any longer. I took off his clothes, made him shower, then led him into the bedroom and made love to him, with me on top. I was trying to reclaim remnants of the man I remembered, the one who, so unlike me, was outgoing and impetuous and always wanted to be of use. The man who had been a passionate, recreational sailor after two weeks out of the year went with friends to the coast to go boating. I could find none of that in him now. The whole time he was inside me, he looked up at my face with an expression that told me he did remember me, but only through a kind of fog. It helped for a while, though. It made him more real. Allowed me to pretend. But only for a while. I only had him in my life again for about twenty-four hours. They came for him the next evening, and once I went through the long, drawn-out process of receiving security clearings, I visited him in the observation facility right up until the end. That antiseptic place where they tested him and tried without success to break through both his calm and his amnesia. He would greet me like an old friend, an anchor of sorts, to make sense of his existence. But not like a lover. I confess I wept because I had hopes that there remained some spark of the man I'd once known. But I never really found it. Even the day I was told he had been diagnosed with inoperable systemic cancer, my husband stared at me with a slightly puzzled expression on his face. He died six months later. During all that time, I could never get beyond the mask. could never find the man I had known inside of him. Not through my personal interactions with him. Not through eventually watching interviews with him and the other members of the expedition all of whom died of cancer as well. Whatever had happened in Area X, he had not come back. Not really. End quote. We are on a wide shot, angled on Kane, past Lena. Lena interrogates Kane about the mission he went on a year ago. His answers are lacking. She asks if it was covert. Kane. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Second four, angle on Lena. Lena. What What does that mean? mean. Maybe. Second seven, angle on Kane, and we get a telling move from this Kane stand-in. Or this emotionally numb Kane. To be fair, and entirely in spoiler territory, this Kane could actually be the original Kane, only altered. And not his replacement. That Lena tricks her doppelganger into burning itself could be a poetic echo of Kane's doppelganger being the one to destroy itself. Or it could be an ironic counter. Much of the thematic content of the film would suggest, as with my imposition of specific psychology already in this minute, that the difference is hardly as important as the possibility that the distinction doesn't matter. In this moment, Kane realizes his answer has not been adequate. The movement of Lena's scripted line about deserving a better explanation than no explanation from earlier to the end of this minute fits better with this reaction from Kane. He is trying to answer, but he lacks the faculties and the knowledge to do so. Which might suggest that this is a doppelganger, and it literally lacks Kane's memories. But imagine also that Kane, a soldier, was captured, tortured. He'd been gone for a year. Would he readily offer up answers about his original mission? Or might he have trouble answering anything? And I find myself drifting over to Susanna Kaysen again, girl interrupted. Quote, Insanity comes in two basic varieties, slow and fast. I'm not talking about onset or duration, I mean the quality of the insanity. The day-to-day business of being nuts. There are a lot of names, depression, catatonia, mania, anxiety, agitation, they don't tell you much. The predominant quality of the slow form is viscosity. Experience is thick, perceptions are thickened dull, time is slow, dripping slowly through the clogged filter of thickened perception. The body temperature is low. The pulse is sluggish. The immune system is half-asleep. The organism is torpid and brackish. Even the reflexes are diminished, as if the lower leg couldn't be bothered to jerk itself out of its stupor when the knee is tapped. Viscosity occurs on a cellular level, and so does velocity. In contrast to viscosity's cellular coma velocity endows every platelet and muscle fiber with a mind of its own. A means of knowing and commenting on its own behavior. There is too much perception. And beyond a plethora of perceptions, a plethora of thoughts about the perceptions and about the fact of having perceptions, digestion could kill you. What I mean is the unceasing awareness of the processes of digestion could exhaust you to death. And digestion is just an involuntary sideline to thinking, which is where the real trouble begins. Take a thought. Anything. It doesn't matter. I'm tired of sitting here in front of the nursing station. A perfectly reasonable thought. Here's what velocity does to it. First, break down the sentence. I'm tired. Well, are you really tired exactly? Is that like sleepy? You have to check all your body parts for sleepiness, and while you're doing that, there's a bombardment of images of sleepiness. Along these lines, the head falling onto pillow, head hitting pillow, winking, blinking, and nod. little Nemo rubbing sleep from his eyes, a sea monster, uh oh, a sea monster. If you're lucky, you can avoid the sea monster and stick with sleepiness. Back to the pillow. Memories of having mumps at age five. Sensation of swollen cheeks on pillows and pain on salivation. Stop. Go back to sleepiness. But the salivation notion is too alluring. And now there's an excursion into the mouth. You've been here before, and it's bad. It's the tongue. Once you think of the tongue, it becomes an intrusion. Why is the tongue so large? Why is it scratching on the sides? Is that a vitamin deficiency? Could you remove the tongue? would your mouth be less bothersome without it? There'd be more room in there. The tongue, now, every cell of the tongue, is enormous. It's a vast foreign object in your mouth. Trying to diminish the size of your tongue, you focus your attention on its components. Tip, smooth, back, bumpy, sides, and scratchy. As noted earlier, vitamin deficiency? Roots. Trouble. There are roots to the tongue. You've seen them. And if you put your finger in your mouth, you can feel them. But you can't feel them with the tongue. It's a paradox. Paradox. The tortoise and the hare. Achilles and the... What? What? Tortoise? Tendon? Tongue? Back to tongue. While well, you weren't thinking of it, it got a little smaller, but thinking of it makes it big again. Why is it scratchy on the sides? Is that a vitamin deficiency? You've thought these thoughts already, but now these thoughts have been stuck onto your tongue. They adhere to the existence of your tongue. All of that took less than a minute, and there's still the rest of the sentence to figure out, and all you wanted really was to decide whether or not to stand up. Viscosity and velocity are opposites, yet they can look the same. Viscosity causes the stillness of disinclination velocity causes the stillness a fascination. An observer can't tell if a person is silent and still because inner life is stalled or because inner life is transfixingly busy, end quote. The telling move here is that Kane looks up, that right hand that maybe he has been trying to figure out how to use to pick up the glass of water, makes an awkward gesture and settles. Cain is, as he was not before, in this conversation now even if he does not know how to be. Cain. Okay. okay. Yeah. Covert. Yeah, cool. no, yeah I think so. so. His phrasing is casual. His voice has an inflection to it like for a moment he is himself again. Second 12 angle on Lena. Lena. standing again. Her right arm slides closer to her body like she's relaxing a little. She can see her cane in this cane. Second 14 angle on cane and he is not only answering, his head is tilted. He is becoming more of himself, or trying to. We skip a few lines from the script. Kane, no. Lena, Yemen. Kane, I can't tell you. Lena, so it is classified. Kane, I mean I can't tell you. I, I don't, I don't know, know. Where it was or, was. or. The script simply says he trails off. Also, his finger taps the table. His eyes go down. His inability to answer, though he clearly wants to, is getting to him. His hand lifts off the table slightly, refracted by the water glass. And in the film, he continues for a few more words that are surprisingly descriptive of his mission. Kane continued. What it was? was. Second 22, abruptly, Angle on Lena. She is gesturing now, coming more alive the more she confronts Kane. Lena interrupted. How is that possible? Was it, was it, was it warm?
1: Was there, was there snow? snow?
0: Angle on Kane, second 28, Lena. Do the people there speak, speak Portuguese, Portuguese or Swahili or Pashto? Pashto? Kane says nothing, but he moves his fingers slightly, scratching at the table. Second 36, Angle on Lena. Lena processes for a beat, fighting back the strangeness of the conversation, trying to assert reason. Lena, continued. How, How long you have you been, been back? back? Second 39, Angle on Kane, Kane. I don't I know. know. Angle on Lena. Lena. How'd you to get, get back? back basically basically fine. Silence. And we stay on Lena as Kane answers again. Kane, I don't know. One. Lena. What, what about, about the rest of Did they, they come, come back, back with you? you? Angle on Cain. Second 49. Lena. You, you must, must be, be able, able to, to tell, tell something. me something. Second 55. Angle on Lena. Her hands are on the counter again. She braces for something. Lena. Continued. You, you vanished off, off the face of the earth, earth for, for 12 months. months. I deserve a better X time runs after this man. Tis heartache lays the lover's passion bare. No sickness with heart-sickness may compare. Love is a malady apart. The sign and astrolabe of mysteries divine. Whether of heaven mold or earthly cast, Love still doth lead us yonder at the last. Reason, explaining love, Cannot but flounder like ass in mire. Love is love's own expounder. Does not the sun himself the sun declare? Behold him. All the proof thou seek'st is there. Rumi, love, the Hierophant. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he by the window and wh- the empty place inside.